Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings and welcome to Under Consultation, the episode-by-episode podcast-type situation through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Gamesmaster. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and no, I can't believe this was split into two episodes either. And I am your other host on this journey, Ash Versus, and I can entirely believe this was split into two parts. I am personally very grateful it was split into two parts because I am 75% more human for this part too. Also as well, like if you thought that, you know, at an hour and 47 that last episode was a bit indulgent in terms of the amount of detail we went into on a few things. That was the cut down version with clips added in. And there are some of those clips in there that, you know, I thought actually were fairly long because I wanted to get as much of them in as possible. We recorded for over two hours that episode, and I think you cut it down to an hour 23. I was vicious. As many tangents as I left in, I cut even more out. We were a bit rambly. I was actually listening back to it and I was amazed all the Sean Ryder stuff made it into the edit. And I was thrilled to see that all the Sean Ryder stuff made it into the edit because it means that we got to use all of those Sean Ryder clips, including all the UFO stuff. If there was one thing I was going to leave in there, it was Sean Ryder going, I've been obsessed with UFOs and I'm taking a (laughs) bunch of drugs. Guess what? Here's my documentary series. But Luke, just before we get into it, a week has passed and in that last episode, you said... You were going to watch Muppet Treasure Island with the little one as a litmus test. What are the results? I thought it was tremendous. She was more interested in the blocks that she was playing with. I know it's a bit late, mate, but are you sure you brought the right one home? Because that does not sound like your kid. No, I mean, maybe it's just she's nine months old. Like, she's, it's weird. Like, TV just does not phase her at all. Like, it doesn't bother her in the slightest. She bloody loves a phone because she'll always go for it and loves, like, grabbing for remotes and stuff. But if you put something on the TV, like a Hey Dougie or something like that, she is not asked. 
She is way more interested in having a book read to her or smashing some blocks together. I think that will change with time. The, the flashing colors and whatnot will uh, will draw her in. But as it currently stands, it just means I get to watch the movies. Like, it's just an excuse for me to watch Muppet Treasure Island, which I had a wonderful time with. Uh, it, it is beautifully camp. Uh, it is very Muppety. I forgot how much I really enjoy some of the songs. Cabin Fever is a banging little number. And actually, a lot of the jokes in there are really really funny anyway it's june 1996 mate it's june 1996 let's kick things off and we are here on the first of june where i know we're all want to talk about three lines being top of the pops but and this is a real startling thing it was the day that tom holland was born our favorite spider-man slash peter parker slash nathan drake slash source of all spoilers for the marvel cinematic universe yeah, born on June 1st, 1996. And if uh, no one listens to the other shows that I do, they may not know the story of when I recently interviewed Tom Holland and made a bit of a boo-boo about that. I think I actually have talked about it on this podcast and on Patreon. But anyway, here's a clip of that. I am Luke Owen from Cineworld, and today I'm joined by the stars of Spider-Man No Way Home, Tom Dolland. Sorry, Tom Dolland? Tom Holland, Tom Dolland, if you want. Tom Dolland. I actually like Tom that. It sounds like nice darling. Like Tom, Tom Dolland. Oh goodness, I'm making an absolute fool of myself before we've even begun our game. But are you ready to play a game with me today? Oh, I love a bit of Tom Dolland. Long story short, I had misunderstood. I had been told her name was Zendaya. And then just before I went to interview her, I was told her name was Zendaya. It was pronounced Zendaya. So I was just saying to myself, Zendaya, 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 Zendaya. Don't get that wrong. And that led me to say, Tom Dolland. Idiot. But anyway, yes, it is June 1st, and we do have a new number one at the top of the pops, and it is very era-appropriate as Three Lions by the Lightning Seeds and Bedeal and Skinner is our UK number one. I unashamedly love this song. I've always been a fan of the Lightning Seeds, and they have a habit, well, I say they, you know, Ian Brody, really. Ian Brody has the habit of writing absolute bangers, absolute hit makers catchy little ditties love them this was an anthem i mean it charted what once twice at least uh the original and then three lines 98 yeah it is uh, one of three songs to top the british charts more than once with slight lyric variants uh, the others being mambo number five and do they know it's christmas so it is very unique company there man one of those was a shameless cash in and the other was bob the builder uh, but yeah, this is a absolute anthem. It, it shows the strength of this song that it is still sung to this day at England football games. When we had the Euros last year, this kind of got a massive resurgence in the charts again. It's funny, I was talking to one of my co-workers, Sullivan, about this song recently. And he said that, yeah, the song was massive here in the UK. It's also massive in Germany. And I was like, really? It's like, yeah, I mean, pretty much just the it's coming home bits. Because every other lyric in that song is very specific to the England national team. And I was like, yeah, it's not really a big German national song, but it's coming home can kind of apply to any country. The, the, the funny thing for this, for me, though, is when I was researching and I was, you know, typing up some notes for it and stuff is that, yeah, you mentioned there that it, it's been released again. It got released for the World Cup 1998 with slightly different lyrics. Uh, 30 Years of Hurt was changed to No More Years of Hurt. Psycho Screaming was added in next. They started singing about, like, the Euro 96 tournament in the, the 98 song. And I'd actually forgotten there was also a 2010 version of the song with the Lightning Seed, with Bedeal and Skinner, but also with Robbie Williams and Russell Brand. I had also completely forgotten that. 
Have you listened to it? I have not re-listened to it, no. And I would wager that no one remembers this song. I'm just checking if it's even on Spotify. I'm just going to listen to it now. I found it on YouTube. There's no sure I've only listened to the first bit of it, and the fact it was the version you heard also orchestral. Yes, it was very orchestral at the start, and then about sort of a minute and a half in, it kicks into "It's Coming Home." But even then, the strings are still there at the beginning, and it's still yes. It's it's a little bit too um. It's a bit too Russell Brand formal because like when I say it's a bit too Russell Brand, is that you know in the original and the '98 song it's. And I remember three lines on a ship, but with Russell Brand, it's and I remember three lines on a shirt. Adds in that sort of extra theatrical note to it. I don't think I forgot that. I don't think I've ever heard that before. <laughs> and I'm not sure I'm going to continue and listen to it all the way through. I'll just stick with the occasional original popping up on my Spotify playlist. Thanks. Uh, but anyway, moving on, on June 2nd, we have a new number one at the top of the UK box office. A bit of a banger, this one, from dusk till dawn. Everybody be cool. You be cool. Somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Low profile. You understand the meaning of the words low profile? Sure. Two of America's most dangerous criminals have taken hostages. What is this? It's called a punch. I'm going to ask you one question, and all I want is a yes or no answer. Do you want to live through this? Yes. Okay, ramblers, let's get rambling. One night is all that stands between them and freedom. This is my kind of place. But it's going to be one hell of a night. The hits keep on coming in this time period. I love From Dust Till Dawn. I love the cast. I love the script. I love the midway flip where everything goes from being one type of movie to another. I love the bits that really haven't aged well because they're still really cool. I fucking love Tom Savini as Sex Machine. The dick pistol. What a cast for this movie. Because yeah, Tom Savini is there, but it's George Clooney. It's Quentin Tarantino in an acting role. He wrote the script. Harvey Keitel, Juliette Lewis, Salma Hayek, Cheech Marin. Like it's the more you go down, the more like, oh yeah, there it is. And then you're like, oh, fucking hell yeah, Tom Savini's in this movie with a dick gun. Also, mate, Danny Trejo. Yeah, Danny Trejo. Well, of course, Danny Trejo's there. It's Robert Rieger's movie. If Danny Trejo wasn't there, he would have just shown up on set and be like, oh, Rob, are you putting me in a scene or what? This is a movie, I actually didn't realise this as well, that it was it kind of intended to be part of the Tales from the Crypt movie series that we've actually discussed before on this podcast in the last mid-season break, but they opted to do Bordello of Blood instead, and this just became its own thing. But do you remember the first time you saw this movie? And on the back of that, did you know that there was a flip in the middle of it? I was a Fangoria reader at this point, so yeah, I knew there was a flip. But I saw this the week it came out on video, and I loved it. I absolutely adored it. I think I wore that damn VHS into the ground. 
I love the style, the look. I love the music. The soundtrack on From Dust Till Dawn is an absolute banger with music that's both featured on the soundtrack and played by the band in the bar, the Titty Twister. Still one of my just absolute favourite horror movies of that era. And that's saying something because we've got a lot of really cool movies coming out in the 90s for the horror genre. We've got your screams. We've got I Know What You Did Last Summer. We've got smaller movies like The Relic. We've got The Arrival of Gilmore Del Toro just around the corner. Faculties in the 90s, which is one of my faves. But this was a Grindhouse-esque. Before we really knew that Grindhouse was coming back, it was that kind of dirty, seedy, gory film with a heart that doesn't have a happy ending, but definitely has a justifiable ending. I didn't see this film until a few years later. Bear in mind, I'm like 10 years old at this point. No one's perfect. (laughs) I didn't see it until a few years later. And it was off the back of, when I was about 14, uh, my brother showed me Pulp Fiction and I became obsessed with Pulp Fiction. And we then had Reservoir Dogs taped off the telly and I became obsessed with Reservoir Dogs and taking those videos up to my cousin Sam's house when uh, up in Scam and watching those and being like, these are the coolest movies I've ever seen. I could do Reservoir Dogs front to back, word for word, every single line of dialogue. I was obsessed with that movie. And then my cousin's mum was a quite a VHS collector, me auntie Sue, and she had From Dust Till Dawn on VHS. And it was Quentin Tarantino that actually drew me into the movie because that was a name that I recognized. It was a name I saw in the box and was like, let's watch this movie. My cousin had already seen it at this point. So he knew the twist was coming, but he didn't tell me anything about it. He just was like, oh yeah, cool. We'll watch this for Tarantino. And when that twist came, bloody hell, I didn't see it coming. It really, really caught me off guard, but it actually made me love the film even more and yeah i i haven't seen it in a fair number of years now but loved 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 from dust till dawn for euro 96 a team needs experienced quality players with good close control and great tactical awareness but even with a safe pair of hands not forgetting a terrific back four competitive midfield and strikers with their eye for goal Without great teamwork, they'll never get past the first round. Only one team can bring you complete and uninterrupted coverage of Euro 96, BBC Television and Radio 5 Live. Your team for the championship. On June 8th, it's a bit of a triple header because Euro 96 kicks off with England drawing with Switzerland one all and also Euro 96 tops the gaming charts for the PlayStation and the Saturn. But you'd think that three lines would still be our UK Top of the Pops number one. But it isn't, because the Fuji's Killing Me Softly is instead. I find it so weird that at the height of England mania, it's the Fuji's that top the charts. I will, you know, spoilers, three lines returns to the Top of the Pops. That's not to say it's not a good song. It's a great song. This is the Fuji's version of the song. Killing Me Softly with Lauren Hill on vocals. It's from their album, The Score, that was also released that year, and it became a huge hit. It was number one over here. It was number one in the US for sales chart, number two in the US for airplay, and it was the best-selling single of the year in a number of countries, including Belgium, Germany, Iceland, and the Netherlands. Sold more than 1.36 million copies in our country alone. 
Yeah, and it's a cover as well, but it's a bloody lovely little cover. This is like, I, I think, the song that really puts the Fugees on the map and makes them one of the biggest artists in the world, actually, in 1996. A, a really, really great song that brilliantly stands the test of time as well. Kind of like, you know, Three Lions is of its era. Killing Me Softly by the Fugees is a timeless, timeless cover. This song didn't disappear out of the charts because people stopped buying it. It disappeared because the record label deleted it. They stopped making copies of it because otherwise it was just going to keep selling and they had other songs they wanted to sell. So they stopped selling copies while the track was still in the top 20 because they were trying to draw people's attention to the next Fuji single, Ready or Not. Yeah, we've had this, we've had this in our timeline before. We had this with Ebenezer Good. It was just like this song is too popular. We need to stop releasing it so we can stop charting and we can release a new single for people to buy. One last note of interest because it is a cover, but also it contains a sample from the 1990 song Benita Applebum, which is by a tribe called Quest. The riff from that is also a sample from a song from the psychedelic soul band Rotary Connection and their track Memory Band. So it is a sample within a sample within a sample. On June 14th, after 32 years, excluding a couple of months in 1973, Top of the Pops moves from its traditional Thursday evening slot to Fridays on BBC One. Fridays just feels like the right time for Top of the Pops to be on. Yes and no. It depends on your audience. Because Friday night, if you're a hip young thing, Friday night you're more likely to be going out than Thursday night. Now, I don't know whereabouts that falls in the demographic of Top of the Pops at that particular point in time, but Friday night slots can be difficult depending on what what your target audience is because are they more likely to be going out? Are they more likely to be down the pub, down the club, stuff like that? There's clearly some decision that's been made here uh, off the back of perhaps ratings or something. That would be my guess. Uh, And I'm only saying that off the back of when I was putting together the edit for the first part of this episode. TFI Friday, its opening gag is Chris Evans going into a morgue to sign the death certificate for Top of the Pops, you know, and how TFI Friday is going to be the new music show of choice. And it really did feel like they were saying, like, this show is dead and done. Also, music is terrible now. Let's go and have Cooler Shaker instead. I can't argue with that logic, Luke. Neither can I. On June 16th, we have a new movie at the top of the UK box office, The Passion of Darkly Noon. They attacked us. Fire, gunshots. So my parents got killed. They were shot. Somehow I got away. It's all right. Don't, Don't do that. Being naked isn't the same as sex, you know. It's a sin. Well, surely God meant for us to enjoy ourselves. Never heard of it, but it's an early title for Viggo Mortensen. I think the only other thing around this time that I remember him being in was one of the Texas Chainsaw sequels. I don't really know much about this either. However, the thing that draws me to this when I was reading the Wikipedia page for it is Mark Kermode's review. I bloody love me some Mark Kermode, which is it's one of my favourite cinematic experiences of recent years. And the reason why I love that as a Mark Kermode quote is that every other review said, this film is unintentionally funny that just has a good ending. That to me sounds like it is a trash movie that only people like Mark Kermode can appreciate. And I'm a person that's like Mark Kermode and appreciates trash cinema. Mate, we've established it about me in the past. 
I'm a trash panda. Yeah, Brendan Fraser, there's maybe one I actually might seek out. I was looking at it and I did see the cast. That alone was enough to make me go, oh, okay. On the 22nd of June, Settlers 2 tops the video game charts and the following day we had a new box office number one with The Rock. Dwayne Johnson. Following is a state secret, gentlemen. Disclose it to any party and you will be subject to prosecution. John Mason, British national incarcerated on Alcatraz in 1962, escaped in 63. There's no identity in the United States or Great Britain. He does not exist. Secrets have a way of coming back to haunt you. There's a hostage situation on Alcatraz. Hostage. 81 tourist. The rocks are tourist attraction. The one you train to defend you becomes your greatest threat. A battery of VX gas rockets is presently deployed to deliver a highly lethal strike on the population of the San Francisco Bay Area. And the one you abandon becomes your only hope. You go talk to him. Me? Yeah. Hiya. I'm an agent with the uh, FBI. I'm Stanley Goodsby. But of course you are. At least he got his name right. Yeah, not that rock, no. Uh Although... Yeah, annoyingly, when you find out there's a movie called The Rock and you're a big wrestling fan, it's like, oh, wow. No, that's not that rock, though, is it? No, it's a Michael Bay movie instead. But it's one of the good ones. Sean Connery, Nicolas Cage, Ed Harris, William Forsyth, Michael Bean. And for those of you that are aware of the area, it's all about Alcatraz. Alcatraz, The Rock, off the coast of San Francisco. The prison it was meant to be impossible to escape from. Kind of wasn't, but let's not go there. And this is a massive, massive film. Production budget of about 75 mil, grossed over 335 million, became the fourth highest grossing film of 1996, which is bloody impressive when you do look at some of the other movies we've talked about. What's really impressive about those numbers that you just said there, that Michael Bay here is only in his second major motion picture. He had Bad Boys the year prior in 95, but before that, It was all the music videos. We meatloaf, we did a big review of the video for uh, I Would Do Anything for Love. And here he is, two movies into his career with a huge budget, an incredible cast, and arguably one of the good Michael Bay movies. I think like this and Bad Boys and Armageddon, they're sort of like his original three. I think that's his strongest output. Unfortunately, it was this success early on that I think led to him becoming a parody of himself. I think so as well, because I'm just looking at it now. Armageddon, that's followed up by Pearl Harbor, which is an absolute disaster of a movie, followed up by Bad Boys 2, which I'm not the biggest fan of, The Island. Then he falls into Transformers with three back-to-back, Pain and Gain, which was, as you said, quite seen as a bit of a parody of it, more Transformers, 13 Hours, Ambulance. And like it's just, it feels like he falls off into this just, I've got to make a Michael Bay movie now. And I've I've got no, I can't paint outside of these lines. Uh, it's a shame because he can do spectacle very well. Unfortunately, he just has no desire to grow. And if anything, regresses as time goes on. But we're still in 1996 and it's The Rock and it's a bloody great movie. Although he is a bit of a scumbag. I mean, Megan Fox's audition for Transformers was washing his car. He is not a good dude. No. Fun fact about uh, The Rock, though, is that it is one of my mother-in-law's favourite movies. And yet, 
every time we have sat down to watch it, that opening five minutes, she will say, I haven't seen this bit. Every single time, without fail, she just forgets the opening five, ten minutes of the movie. She'll remember everything else afterwards, but there's something about those opening five, ten minutes she just does not remember. And our theory is, is because she's a bit of a feeder, is that she's going in and out of the living room into the kitchen, getting snacks and getting drinks for people to make sure that everyone's comfortable before the film really starts. That makes sense. So every time, so if you sit down and all the snacks are ready and then you press play, she's like, I have no idea if I've seen this film before. Then five minutes in, oh, I know this. This is great. (laughs) This is a great movie. I love this one. And on the same day, the 23rd of June, 1996, the N64 is released in Japan. About bloody time. Now, I'm sure we will have more to say on this. In fact, I know we will because I've got the Games Master magazine stack beside me. But I guess we will cover the N64 launch more in depth when it gets launched in the UK because it's going to get the same treatment as the Saturn and the PlayStation got. It's only fair. Plus, we would get letters if we didn't. Well, we'd get one letter or rather one person would send us multiple letters. Cliff. (laughs) <laughs> watching ahead into series six it is like amazing how much of it is n64 focused and yet one of the first news items is we're not getting it until next april like games master series six is off the air before we get it yeah we're not getting it until next april but hey we've flown dominic to japan larks we've got bloody loads of them uh on the 26th of june the bbc and itv broadcast live coverage of england versus germany their semi-final match of euro 96 and it is collectively watched by 26 million viewers. So we go into sudden death penalties. Well, he's only just recently forced his way into the England side, Southgate. Model, they call him, at uh, Model at uh, Aston Villa. He does everything right. Well, let's hope he can do this right as well. Saved it! It's that level of viewership that kind of brings about the jokes about power substation circuit breakers being set off at half time because of everyone going to make a cup of tea. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I I remember this day very, very vividly and having people round to watch the semi-final because we really did think maybe this will be it, even though that wasn't a cat in hell's chance we were beating that Germany side. Uh, It was not coming home that day or since, really, although we're getting better again. We got a lovely bunch of lads in that team. Lovely bunch of coconuts and lads. On the 29th of June, International Track and Field tops the video game charts. And then on the 30th of June, Euro 96 comes to a conclusion with Germany beating the Czech Republic. It really did come home for them. But Ash, 
what is in our magazines that we're bringing home to read? Well, the first thing from this one, which has Mortal Kombat 4 on the cover, is an iron-on transfer kit for Adidas Power Soccer. So you know you used to get those iron-on transfers free with magazines. This, this has still got it. It's got a kind of a little one that goes kind of over the breast area and another one that goes on the shoulder. Very nice. I actually never bothered with any of those things. I got them with magazines a lot, but I never did them. Me neither, because, you know, they were kind of crap usually. Yeah, not very good. The lead news item in here is sadly bloody useless for us because we're an audio medium, and that is a whole host of new screenshots of Mario 64, which is claimed to be 95% complete at this point. So I'm guessing this is as they went to press. And if it's, what, out by the end of the month? Yeah, I mean, it would have been probably written in May as well at that point, going into June to get all like get printed and pressed and sent out. So yeah, so I think that's that's probably still fair. Although you don't, you'd hope it would be 90, more than 95% complete if you were that close to launch. But in addition to kind of all the Mario 64 love, there's also some Mario rumours listed here saying that the rumours currently circulating in the industry aren't solely restricted to the development of Mario 64. There are already stories of Shigeru Miyamoto lining up two other Mario games for the Nintendo 64. The first is likely to be a traditional 2D Mario title, but boasting expansive levels and a huge number of them, and the second title is also likely to be a 2D game, this time featuring none other than the hungry little green fella, Yoshi. It would come as no great surprise to find Nintendo releasing massive traditional Mario games. What's the first thing you want when you finish a Mario game? More levels, of course. Now, that 2D Mario game never came to be. There were a number of other Mario games that did come out for the Nintendo 64, including the start of a few series, including Mario Party and, of course, Smash Brothers. But Yoshi's Island. Oh, that Nintendo 64 Yoshi's Island game is bloody good. I love that one. I wonder what that other 2D one could have been, because the only one I really think of that was like, you know, Paper Mario that comes out later on the GameCube. Like that sort of world, like where I think of 2D Mario. And they do point out there'll be more Mario 64 next month. It will be on show at the E3 event to be held in LA. Plus, many other software publishers are holding back to reveal their Nintendo 64 games until that same show. And we'll be there. We'll be able to get a go on all these titles. Cruise in USA, Pilot Wing 64, Killer Instinct 64, GoldenEye, Blast Dozer, Tetrisphere, Wave Race, Mario Kart R, and Buggy Boogie, plus lots, lots more. Just as a correction on my part there, Paper Mario did come out on the N64, but it is very unlikely that is what they're referring to, because that is a game that did not hit our shores until October of 2001. So it's very unlikely that they were talking about that. But hey, you never know, maybe they were. And just lastly from the news articles for this month, Good news for the Saturn, Luke. Well, it's about time. What have we got? We've got our first look at Nights into Dreams. I mean, isn't it weird? We've said this quite a few times on this podcast now. It's the game Saturn owners are waiting for. A ambitious game is Nights into Dreams. And by that, I mean it is like Sonic worked because they took a very Eastern idea and Sega of America westernized it with Nights. They literally just picked it up and plonked it down in the West. And it is a game that didn't really find its audience around these parts. But the audience that it did find absolutely loved it. I mean, I've got my 3D Saturn controller here. It's a lovely game, even now. This copy may be kind of bigging it up beyond its means, though. So they say these are the first shots of a gorgeous Saturn 3D adventure game nights to emerge from Sega HQ. 
It's being developed by Yuji Naka, the man who brought you Sonic the Hedgehog, and is proving to be the game against which the Saturn-specific Sonic game is being modelled. Tom Kalinske, president of Sega of America, is very confident about what this game can do. We're completely convinced that this title will do for the Saturn what Sonic the Hedgehog did for the Genesis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's what they were aiming for because they weren't going to get a Sonic game, but it didn't quite do that. But yeah, a, a very bold, ambitious game, which I've got a lot of a lot of love and appreciation for. And just as a note, Tekken 2 was reviewed in this issue on import for the PlayStation and scored 95%. Oh, that's a great score there for Tekken 2. Unsurprising, but a very, very good score. Yeah, 90s all round. 96 graphics, 92 sound, 90 gameplay, lifespan 92. Deserved. Moving into July and on the 3rd, Alice in Chains perform their last concert with lead singer Lane Staley in Kansas City, Missouri while touring with KISS. Earlier in the year, they had recorded uh, MTV Unplugged, which was like their first gig in like two and a half years or something like that. Uh, I am a huge, huge Alice in Chains fan and uh, I, I absolutely love Lane Staley and I love his voice and appreciate you know i understand why the band went their separate ways and, and all of the troubles that they had but yeah i've got those first few albums dirt is just an impeccable piece of work that i absolutely adore uh and not just because they're in street fighter the movie on the 6th of july fade to black tops the uk charts as three lions returns to the top of the music charts however on the 7th of july mission impossible is the uk box office number one good morning mr phelps this is your mission should you choose to accept it should you or any member of your im force be caught or killed the secretary will disavow all knowledge of your actions ethan hunt will be your point man as usual good luck jim I am astounded that this film turned into the juggernaut series it did. It's directed by Brian De Palma, of course, produced and starring Tom Cruise, who is now basically the name that keeps it going. Because we're getting like two films. We're getting what, one this year and one next year, or one next year and the year after, something yeah, like that? They've they've split this one into two parts. Yeah, they've hobbited it. Which is ironic when you think about Tom Cruise's height. This is a continuation of the original TV series and the revived sequel and is set like half a decade after that sequel show and follows Ethan Hunt and his mission to uncover the mole who has framed him from the murders of most of his impossible mission force team. And there were a lot of different names attached to this over time, a number of directors, a number of writers. The one thing I remember is that when it came out, Quite a few critics thought it was a mess. It did get favourable overall, but I remember Barry Norman kind of slamming into it, and I remember a couple of other people as well. And I remember going to see it at the cinema myself and thinking, it's okay. That's what I was going to say. Like you said, that you're amazed that it became the juggernaut that it is, and I'm. I mean, it is being pushed by Tom Cruise, really, and you know the success that it now has. But you're right, like because this film was panned when it came out, it was a joke. It was like a running joke amongst sort of like movies and science. And really people only kind of Bucky O'Hare's rated it for the, the dangling scene. And then everyone just parried that dangling scene and just did various different things about that. But realistically, like everyone thought that the film was real stupid and had like a nonsense storyline that didn't make any sense. 
it's only like when you get into Mission Impossible 2 and, and 3 that it kind of becomes a different franchise. And then by the fourth film, it becomes a completely different franchise again. I mean, much like you said, the wire sequence, most of the action sequences got raved about. And that's what they really stuck with moving forward. It's like, okay, we're going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. What's that? Tom Cruise wants to actually ride a motorbike off a cliff? We're going to do what with the train? Hey, he's signing the checks. Let's go with it. Hail Zenu. That's it. He just sits down and is like, what stunt can I do this time round? I think I'm just going to hang onto a plane while it takes off. Yep, cool. That's what we'll do this time, Tom, I guess. Looking back on it, it's an okay movie, but the second one is so much better. And then the third one, oh, daddy. I don't think this film's got less stupid. I think people just started to accept that these were stupid movies. It's Fast and Furious. Yes. Uh, Like that first one, it's taking itself quite seriously. By now, they're just in space. Also, that second one has a great song by Limp Bizkit and a a massively underrated track by Metallica in it as well. Uh, I'm going to go to bat for those. That's absolutely fair, as I would expect you to. On July 9th, the final episode of Going for Gold is broadcast on BBC One, although it does make a brief return in 2008. On the 11th, BBC Two airs South African President Nelson Mandela's historic address to the Houses of Parliament. The programme is introduced by Michael Burke. And then the day after that, Killing Me Softly returns to the top of the charts. This must be one of the first times we've had this with the singles chart. We, we haven't had many occurrences thus far of songs dipping off of number one and then coming back again later. Yeah, certainly in our timeline that we're done for this podcast. And I think it's funny that it is the same two songs as well. Like it is, you know, Euro 96 Fever is trying to grip the country, but the Fugees are like, no, we've got the best song of the year. And it's like, no, but Badil and Skinner. And the Fugees are like, no, but really, this is one of the best songs of the year. We should be number one again. I mean, the solution is surely to have the Fugees cover Three Lions. If only. And on July 15th, a groundbreaking bit of news here for this podcast, because he's a man that's been featured quite heavily on the show. Tom Kalinske announces he will be leaving his position as the president of Sega of America. He would leave that position on the 1st of October. But mate, who's going to carry the torch forward for night? It's going to do for the Saturn what Sonic did for the Mega Drive. I know, I was sitting there listening to that interview being like, oh, it's like 15 days time and I can talk about Tom Kalinske leaving Sega. You wonder if he knew when he started giving quotes like that and he's like, is this this going to save the Saturn? Sure. If you go by what Console Wars says, which is very much a Tom Kalinske biopic, really, and sort of like biography, he knew that he was gone. He knew that he was done. There's an, a, a line in the book about like he sort of looked around the Sega of America office and he didn't recognize the place anymore because a lot of the people that he was working with when they were launching the Genesis in America and making it the huge hit that it was weren't there anymore. He was just having infighting with the civil war between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. He had his vision of what the Saturn should be. Sega of Japan were like, no, we're doing it our way. And boy, how did that work out for them? And... He is a guy that the video game industry could have been so much more different if Tom Kalinske had been given the ball to run with by Sega of Japan, because we may not have got the PlayStation, because Sega were looking to work with Sony on the Saturn. Could have been a very, very different landscape, in the same way that like would have been a different landscape had Nintendo not fucked them over. Interesting one for me here on July 19th, and interesting because it's not a number one box office hit, The Hunchback of Notre Dame is released. 
Disney's big animated movie for 1996, and it blocked. And it wasn't even like a stumble. This was a full-on faceplant out of the bell tower. It was... It's not a bad movie. That's what I actually rewatched it last year, and it's actually all right. It's got some of the Disney jovial stuff about it, the statues chatting away and doing their sort of jokes. I'm losing to a bird. But it is, at its core, a dark, gothic, operatic movie. And I love the ambition of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, but it does not stick. It didn't stick the landing with the audiences because it's not The Lion King. And it's a movie that changes the course of Disney animated movies. It makes them completely change the direction they were taking Hercules. And actually, Hercules does this big 180 design and completely gets flipped around into being the movie that Hercules has, which is just like, fucking hell, that dark, going dark didn't work. Make this one brighter. Make this one gospel. Make this one fun to watch. Because Hunchback was not fun, and people didn't want to go and watch it. I did not see Hercules for a long, long time. I think it was like within the last 10 years, maybe I saw Hercules for the first time. I wish I'd seen it earlier. Bloody loved Hercules. That film was gonzo. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? I really, really like it. My wife was watching it not too long ago with the kid, and it is, uh, it's really good. On the 20th of July, Formula One Grand Prix 2, which we saw in that final episode of Bad Influence, tops the UK video game charts while former Take That star Gary Barlow is top of the pops with Forever Love. Crikey, it didn't take him long, did it? No, you reckon he had that one in his back pocket? It was his debut single from his debut solo album, which wasn't due out until the next year. And speaking of debuts, debuted at number one, becoming his first of three number ones away from the mothership of Take That. It's funny, when I was kind of gathering together clips and stuff of Take That splitting up, all of the pundits at the time were talking about, you know, what will happen with the band once they're broken up. And they, the general consensus was, well, Gary will be fine because Gary writes the songs as is and his really lead vocals, he'll be fine. It's Howard that you're going to worry about, like he's going to be doing absolutely nothing and yeah, as it would happen, that would pretty much be correct. On the 21st of July, the Game Boy Pocket is released in America, which you and I were raving about. I think we were raving about it on the Bad Influence episode, in fact, about how much we really like the Game Boy Pocket. Yeah, it it was just something about... It had all the great gameplay of the original Game Boy, of course, because it was 100% backward compatible. It ran off less batteries, the batteries lasted longer, and also, importantly, it fit on the inside pocket of a blazer or school coat. And on that same day, Happy Gilmore is the UK box office number one. For 400 years, golf has been a gentleman's game. A game of tradition, etiquette, and above all, sportsmanship. Until now. Y'all ready for this? Meet Happy Gilmore. He was a hockey player. That's my puck, baby! Don't you ever touch my puck! Who was skating on thin ice. But when his grandma needed his help... Mrs. Gilmore owes the IRS $270,000. We're going to have to sell the house to someone else. But she's an old lady. I mean, look at her. She's old. He discovered a new talent. The house is like 400 yards away. That's unbelievable. Now he's going from the links. Step right up, folks. See if you can outdrive the amazing golf ball uh, whacker guy. To the links. Hey, where you going with those clubs, punk? I'm your caddy. He's going to be on the tour. That's that's super. Oh, another Adam Sandler movie. It's Adam Sandler, but this time he's playing golf. I like Happy Gilmore. 
of the two that we've had in this 1996 run, I much, much prefer this uh, to the one we had earlier, to Billy Madison. I, I'm, I think Happy Gilmore's a much better movie. I think it got mixed to negative reviews from the critics, in fairness, but it was a massive success, a commercial success. It only cost $12 million to make, and it made back nearly 40. Like it had, it found, it had its audience. Yeah, it's a good return. On the 24th of July, Buckingham Palace ends the BBC's monopoly on producing the Royal Christmas Message, which has been the sole responsibility of the broadcaster for 63 years. It's produced by ITV from 1997 before returning to the BBC in 1999, then ITV again from 2001. The two-year changeover continues to the present day. On the 26th of July, the BBC and Hantrick Productions are fined £10,000 each in the High Court for contempt of court over comments made on a 1994 edition of Have I Got News For You, in which presenter Angus Deaton referred to Ian and Kevin Maxwell as, quote, two heartless scheming bastards ahead of their trial. The fact that they were fined doesn't mean that Angus was wrong. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Of course, not the most controversial thing that Angus Deaton will have to deal with with his time on Have I Got News For You. No, although it won't be things coming out of his mouth that will be the issue. It'll be things going up his nose. Mm-hmm. On the 27th of July, the Spice Girls top the charts with Wannabe for a whopping seven weeks. That's it. We're done talking about singles for a while because Wannabe comes out and woomph, it just takes over. There was just something about this group and the way that the label Virgin presented them in that, like, this song wasn't supposed to be released at this time. It was supposed to be released much closer to the album's release, which is actually in a couple of months' time. But there was just all of a sudden this huge interest in the Spice Girls because the label had put them out there into magazines and put them out there onto TV shows and stuff to be like, hey, we're this new group that's going to be coming out soon. We've got this song coming out. And all of a sudden the label were like, oh, we've got something hot on our hands here. Let's strike while this iron is hot. Get this song out now, and then we'll release the album in a couple of months' time. And it worked because, yeah, this out is seven weeks. This is at number one. This song was everywhere. I mentioned that holiday that I had, that camping holiday in, in Haven, you couldn't escape this song. It, it was the start of the Spice Girls launch into the stratosphere and they just had that perfect blend of kind of personality, musical talent, musical talent backing them up. And also you had a whole generation that wanted to be them or be friends with them. Then you had a whole other generation that fancied them. And they, there was a cross appeal. There was kind of like role model appeal and sex appeal. And they were just a, like, it meant there was this massive demographic buying their songs, buying their albums, buying magazines they featured in and stuff like that. Sometimes the same thing, but by different people for very different reasons. The, um, the names as well that they had, like Sporty, Scary and all of that, like the urban myth on that, I think this is true, is that it was a magazine that did that like they were just sort of sent to do an interview and you know it was jerry and emma and victoria and all of that but like they just sort of said like oh i'm the sporty one and then like you know i'm the posh one so when they wrote up they just called them posh spice and baby spice ginger spice scary spice and the other one smurfs (laughs) well that's it and like all of a sudden that became their branding yeah what a monolith of a band they become in this country they have their own movie they had a playstation game like they had every single thing about them and at 10 years old 
I was in that Venn diagram, the center of that Venn diagram you mentioned earlier of I was young enough to just love pop music and love the fact they had great, great tunes because Wannabe's a brilliant song, Two Become One's a brilliant song, Say You'll Be There's a brilliant song. It's banger after banger on that album, but I'm also just turning into the cusp of like, oh, girls, eh? And the crush that I had on Jerry Halliwell cannot be understated. You know, it's just me, you and the listeners. Did you ever see those pictures they dug up when she was doing the nude modelling? Oh, yeah, of, of course I did. Of course, like early days of internet access at home. Of course those things came up. One of the only things that came up. <laughs> Diamondism. <laughs> well, we're getting into series six. It's bloody filthy, that series. But we've still got a way to go because, Christ, it's only the end of July and it is the movie which, in retrospect, was my favourite summer blockbuster of 1996. It's Twister, baby! There is a mystery. Elusive. Unpredictable. Violent. It terrifies most scientists. But for a new breed, the challenge is saving lives. The research is deadly. The laboratory is nature itself. And potentially uh, could be a storm that has a wind to next to Yeah, this is a yonder bond joint after he left making the Godzilla movie that would eventually go to Roland Emmerich, who will be coming up in just a short moment of time over these creative differences. The creative differences being yonder bond didn't want to make a Godzilla movie, and yet they went to someone else who also didn't want to make a Godzilla movie. No wonder that movie didn't fucking work. But anyway, he decided to do Twister here instead. I think probably made the right choice because this is a movie he actually wanted to make. Like this is off the back of the success of Speed. You're right, I think, in a way. that It's a movie that, at the time when it came out, people really liked, but I think people look back on it now and are like, wow, it was actually quite underappreciated in its time because I think it just comes out in a period of time when there's so many big blockbusters that it sort of gets lost a little bit, lost in the shuffle somewhat. I mean, just to look at the talent behind it, we already mentioned Jean de Bond, but it's a screenplay by Michael Crichton and Anne-Marie Martin who got $2.5 million apiece for writing that script. And... A number of Michael Crichton films and scripts came out in the wake of Jurassic Park. This is one of the good ones. It's no Congo. Yeah, I was going to say, yes, that's 2.5 million there because they were like, Michael Crichton can, ER's massive on TV as well. That man can do no wrong. Give him all of the money. Everyone just looks past Congo and they're like, no, but look, Jurassic Park and ER. He's clearly got other good ideas. He was also a producer on the project, but he wasn't producing alone. Kathleen Kennedy was also involved at that level, along with Steven Spielberg as one of the executive producers. Yeah, that explains why Kathleen Kennedy was there. But the cast as well, you've got Bill Paxton, Jamie Gertz, Carrie Elwes, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who Dusty is like the greatest and worst character in this film. How is he a scientist? Why would you trust him to look after another human being? 
I wouldn't trust him to look after a fucking <laughs> rock. Uh, you also had Alan Ruck, Todd Field, Jeremy Davis, and the leading lady at that point, better known for her comedy chops, Helen Hunt. It, she's got that Laura Dern energy uh, yeah. about her. And she was the person that DeBont wanted for this role. He was like, no, because she, I've seen her boss people around. I've seen her be that person on set. She will be the right person to take control of this ragtag bunch of misfits and scientists. And the studio were like, cool, but it's Helen Hunt. She does comedy. And so they went, can you do some more casting calls? Can you, like, can you, can you see some more leading actresses? So he's like, okay. And he did. He saw loads of different people, some immensely huge names. And at the end of every audition with them, he did go, I mean, thank you for coming in to see me, but I already know who I want to play this role. I'm literally just trying to make the studio heads happy. And they would have understood that as well. They would have totally got the, you know, be like, that's cool. Do what you can do to appease the producers here. In the build-up to us recording this, I actually watched both of the kind of big two summer blockbusters. I watched Independence Day and then I watched Twister. And it was just a roller coaster with an amazing soundtrack, amazing design, kind of really still CGI that holds up. 1996 CGI holding up. That says something. Also, I guess exposed a group of people that were mostly unknown at that point. People didn't know much about tornado chasers or just thought they were all lunatics who didn't have a scientific reason for being there. And admittedly, the cast of characters in this film are all lunatics, but they have a scientific reason for being there, Luke. I, I think every single thing about that movie works and sticks the landing perfectly. Have I told the Philip Seymour Hoffman testicle story on this podcast before? I was about to say the penis uh, Seymour Hoffman story. Well, where basically he's in the background in a scene wearing cargo shorts on a chair. And he's in, it's not just his penis. His balls and penis were clearly visible and they had to fix it, so to speak. They basically just had to snip the frames uh, out for later release. Uh, the last thing to note as well, because you kind of set this up in the first episode as well, but this was our other big blockbuster movie that could have had Tom Hanks as our leading star. He was supposed to take on that role. He was supposed to take on the Paxton role, uh, instead opting not to do it because he decided that doing an action movie wasn't really what he wanted to do with his career at that point, and instead went off to direct legit one of my favorite movies of this time, That Thing You Do which is a superb movie about one-hit wonders in the 1960s. And it is, if you've not seen it, I would recommend people could check it out because it is really, I think it's on Disney+. Plus. The band is literally called The Wonders. And it is just, you know, they've got this song called That Thing You Do. It becomes this massive hit, but that's it. And Tom Hanks is their director. His son's in the movie. He plays their manager. And it is a brilliant, brilliant movie. But he was the guy who then suggested that they take on Paxton instead because he'd start alongside him in Apollo 13. It was like, hey, he's great. You should cast him instead. Wow. What a wonderful choice. The right call for all people involved because I cannot see Tom Hanks and Helen Hunt having that level of on-screen chemistry. They're both amazing actors, but it's cheese and jam. They're not designed for each other. Whereas Helen and Bill, peanut butter and jelly time. It was the number two highest grossing film of 96, $495 million worldwide. And a very fun stage show at Universal Studios. Back before most of Universal Studio became dark rides with kind of CGI screens. Yeah, the minions and all that. Anyway, Ash, before we head into August, what we got going on in the Games Master magazine? 
Well, kicking off the network section, Games Master Magazine are heralding Super Mario 64 as possibly the most important game ever. But that's not all for Nintendo, because right underneath, there are details of the titles that Nintendo are continuing to release for the Super Nintendo and Sega as well, like the titles that Sega still have planned for the Mega Drive, because Sega will release more than 12 of their own games in the US at least, including Sonic Blast, Vectorman 2, and Virtua Fighter Animation, which will herald the 16-bit debut of Virtua Fighter. Yeah, well, yeah, they, Virtua Fighter is a very big release actually for the Mega Drive. Bloody expensive as well. It was really expensive when it came out. And over on the other side, Nintendo have also revealed their prime titles, which is Donkey Kong Country 3, Dixie's Double Trouble, Kirby Superstar, and the stupidly playable and addictive Tetris Attack. Also heading for the SNES and heading for the Nintendo 64 is Ken Griffey Jr.'s winning run and Super Mario RPG Legend of the Seven Stars, which isn't coming to the UK. No. Well, I, I mentioned that earlier in the in the month. I was wondering if we were going to get some mention of that in the magazine. So I'm glad we did, actually. And yeah, that um that Donkey Kong game we get as a challenge, I think, in Series 6 as well. So that'd be really cool to keep an eye on. There's also a whole bunch of other news for me 3 about not only Nintendo's plans and previews of the latest Nintendo 64 games, but also the Saturn and the PlayStation. The war is heating up. But Luke, guess what? What's that? There's a feature on the Atari Jaguar. Bloody hell, what the hell are they saying about it? The title is Atari Jaguar, dead or just smelling a bit? (laughs) If you're a Jaguar owner, you may have noticed a distinct lack of Jaguar stuff appearing in Games Master or even appearing in the shops. We thought we'd put on our detective hats and see what we could come up with. The news is not good. I'm sure you're shocked by that, Luke. I was going to say, this feels like an article that could have been in Games Master magazine two years ago. A source at Atari have told us they have no plans to release any more Atari-produced games in the foreseeable future. They are withdrawing the Jaguar from sell-through and have some vague plans to do something a bit special at Christmas. They are not reacting to the Sony Sega price drops because the Jaguar is currently only £99 and can be found for less if you shop around. However, in America, they have reduced the price of the Jaguar to a measly $49. There are SNES games more expensive than that. Can I say, we mentioned Virtua Fighter on the Mega Drive. That's more expensive than the Jaguar. And they're doing that in the hope to clear the stocks of the machine. Another slightly disturbing fact is that Atari have not manufactured any of the machines since mid-1995 and have no plans to order any more unless present stock levels clear. So while Atari go to great lengths to say that they are still hanging in there, taking on the Japanese giant, it seems they really are a spent force and it's just a matter of time before all goes toes up for the Jaguar. As you'd expect, though, Atari are publicly denying any such talk of the Jaguar being extinct. Worms has been confirmed as being released on the system, but one game doesn't change the situation. There's a lack of games being released and good software, or at the very least quantity of software, is the key to a console's success. So are you a totally fed up Jaguar owner or are you still very happy with the way things are going? Let us know by writing into letters. See page 88 for more details. And I'm sure those letters will be met with sensitivity and sympathy. Poor, poor Jaguar. Really, like they thought it was going to be the next big thing. You know, the push that it had on Games Master, they really thought that and the 3DO were going to be the ones to send us off into the next generation. But it was actually little old Sony and Nintendo that did that. Because it sure as f*** wasn't Sega. (laughs) Oh, come on now, 
candy snacks. Heads up your what? Candy snacks. They're a new idea for people who love filling. What's a handy snack? It comes with little breadsticks and the Philadelphia's all whipped up and fluffy. I want some! Woo! Stop this crap immediately! Mmm, just right about for one person. Handy snacks, the new idea for people who love Philadelphia. Did you save any for me? No. <laughs> At Vision Express, we're famous for innovation, like our one-hour service. Now, Vision Express bring you Kodak thin and light lenses. Advanced technology, which makes lenses up to 22% thinner, 24% lighter, and 50% flatter. They're so thin and light, and only 15 pounds extra. And I've got a free second pair. Both pairs in an hour. Another exclusive offer from Vision Express. Kodak thin and light lenses, only 15 pounds extra. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Nothing starts your day quite like a good cereal breakfast. And no one makes a breakfast cereal quite like Kellogg's. Because only Kellogg's make cereals the Kellogg way. So remember, if you don't see the Kellogg's name on the box, it isn't Kellogg's in the box. Roll the dice, unleash the adventure, Jumanji. In your lagoon, Matsu. Yeah, at least we're inside. Yeah, right. It's a stampede! Purge more Jumanji at Blockbuster Video now. Heading into August and on the 1st, MTV2 is launched in the United Kingdom. The first video played is Where It's At by Beck. Do you remember when MTV was about music videos? Ah, yes, it was 1996. (laughs) And on the 4th of August, the other aforementioned big summer blockbuster is here as Independence Day is top of the UK box office for three weeks. 
Now, I know we kind of both came out Team Twister when it came to the summer box offices, but this is still a fun movie. It's a good movie. I wouldn't Mm. say it's classic cinema, but it's still a fun movie. It's got a great cast. It's got, you know, obviously Will Smith, Bill Pullman, Jeff Goldblum, Mary McDonald, Judd Hirsch, Margaret Collin, Randy Quaid, Robert Loggier, James Rayborn, Harvey Fierstein, and one of my favourite little cameos, Brent Spiner. As a man, they do not let out much. Yeah, Data from Star Trek makes his little appearance in the movie and is quite quickly killed. Until he isn't, because they realised that he was one of the only people they could get back for the sequel. Yeah, that sequel ain't good. That sequel is kind of like if you said, well, what, what made Independence Day so successful? Well, you know, there was the action, you know, and there was the special effects and the, the kind of the, the, the grand scale of the peril and the destruction. But most of all, it was the humour that really tied it all together. Cool. What if we removed that and just kept everything else? But this movie was kind of like the Spice Girls everywhere in 1996. Like that shot of the White House exploding was featured on so many TV shows in magazines and this and the other. And like you couldn't escape people talking about Independence Day and the incredible special effects of uh, that came out and in fact you really when it kind of came to critics some critics thought it was really good but a lot of critics were like yeah it's just some really big special effects but there's not much else to it i i i you know we kind of were team twisted but there is still some real good in independence day it is still a really good movie we're not gonna dive too hard into independence day right now because Coming up in the first month or so of Series 6, we're going to have a bonus episode on Independence Day UK, which starred, amongst other people, one Sir Patrick Moore. So we'll be taking a look at that in a separate episode. And because it is directly tied into the original film, it's impossible not to talk about the original film. But I'm looking forward to that episode. That was one of those bonus episodes that I pitched to you on that original day when we sat in the uh, tap house having a drink. Because I was like, oh, well, we've got to do Independence Day UK. It had Patrick Moore in it. He fist fought an alien. I was say, Patrick Moore effectively saves the day. But the one note I will say is we said that Twister was our number two at the box office for 1996. Independence Day was, of course, the number one. It got a little bit more worldwide than Twister. Not much, just a little bit. 815 million. Yeah, for a period of time, this was the second biggest movie ever, just behind Jurassic Park. On August 6th, influential punk rock group The Ramones play their final show at the Palace in Hollywood. Man, they really did stick around. And on that same day, here in the UK, very, very sad news for us. 
the final episode of Finders Keepers airs on CITV. Oh, that was such a good show. We, were, we loved it, didn't we? When we did our uh, UCP Extra on it, we did like one of the classic Buchanan episodes. This was when it was Buchanan with Jet from Gladiators for a sort of final run. But yeah, I, I really do think there's some good in Finders Keepers. On the 10th, BBC One begins airing Stephen King's The Stand, a miniseries based on the novel of the same name. It is shown in four parts over two weekends. This would be the uh, 1994 miniseries, yeah, with Gary Sinise, Molly Ringwald and such? Could possibly be, yeah. All I've got is it's the BBC start airing Stephen King's The Stand. That one is absolutely amazing. Uh, the teleplay was actually written by Stephen King as well. It was another example of him deciding to do things kind of right in his mind. And I think he did pretty much succeed. Uh, Matt Frewer was in it as well, fresh off Job's War. <laughs> Rob Lowe was in there. Tom Holland was in there. Not that Tom Holland, a different Tom Holland and Stephen King making one of his cameos. But the name that leaps out to me is one Mick Garris, who I think you will probably know from Critters 2 as much mm-hmm. as Hocus Pocus as well. Yeah. And also the Postmortem podcast, which is absolutely wonderful and delightful. And he talks to all sorts of wonderful horror guests on there. On the 10th of August, and the 11th for that fact, Oasis played the largest freestanding gigs in British history at Nebworth House in Stevenage. 2.7 million people applied for tickets and they sold out to 350,000 people attending the concerts, 175,000 on each night, with Stone Roses guitarist John Squire joining the band on stage to play Champagne at Supernova. I've already used the quote before, but... This is history! This is history! Right here! Right now! This is history! I thought Rings true in my head every single time I think of this gig. An amazing location for an amazing gig. The summer of Britpop. They recently re-released this to celebrate the 25th anniversary of it. It was re-released in cinemas. I didn't get a chance to go and see it, but I kind of wish I had, because it is an outstanding gig. It's, it's Oasis at peak Oasis, I would say as well. On the 17th of August, Resident Evil tops the UK gaming charts, which we're going to have a fair amount on, I'd imagine, in the magazines, but we'll also get it in Games Master Series 6. Now, obviously, we're going to look at the August magazine in a little while, but I'm just going to skip back to the July magazine because Les is there to review Resident Evil for the PlayStation. And it details, obviously, the game. There's information on a lot of the monsters with that beautiful 2D artwork that was also featured on the packaging and in the manual. But Luke, do you want to have a quick guess at the scores? Oh, yeah, we haven't done one of these yet. I don't really need to give you much in the way of details of Resident Evil. I believe you're familiar with the work. I'm, I'm pretty au fait with the game, yeah. So graphics, rendered locations and polygon characters make this more realistic than anything that's gone before. 97. 91. Bloody hell, Les. You just said that it's more realistic than anything before. And you probably scored that less than you would have scored Tekken. Sounds, spooky music, eerie effects and top rollicking blasting effects. Turn this baby up to the maximum. So that sounds like it's going to be higher than 91, but I don't think it's going to be much higher. I'm going to say 93. 91. Les, come on, mate. Work with me here. Gameplay, puzzles, exploration, and tons of gunfights. You could ask for nothing more. Something for everyone. Hmm. If this is higher than 91 now, then fuck me sideways. But I'm going to say 90. Well, I guess you should assume the position because 96%. Fucking hell, Les. Like... (laughs) 
You've gone from like, this is the most incredible thing in the world, 91, to essentially, yeah, it's all right, 96. Lifespan. Even when you finished it, you'll want to come back for a bit more wanton bloodshed. That was, surely it's going to be high, 95. 93. All over the place, it's Les here. So graphics, 91. Sound, 91. Gameplay, 96. Lifespan, 93. Overall, Resident Evil is bloody brilliant, and whoever made it should be knighted or offered up as the next bit on the side for Princess Die. Ooh, that comment aged well. Dearie me. I don't want to say age like a fine murder, but yeah. Um, friggin' hell, okay, 91, 91, 96, 93, did you say? Yep. Right, so, in the 90s, obviously, but it's probably more towards that bottom half, because 91, two 91s and the 93 will drag down that 96, but I wonder if it'll average out to, because 91s will certainly average out, I'm going to say 92%. 95. Yeah, it's a review that makes no sense. But the overall score despite how we got there not making sense, is, I think, the right score. I think 95 is deserved. Absolutely it is. Uh, on the 25th, we have a new number one at the box office. It is the Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle, Eraser. He works for a secret government agency. He answers to no one. called in when time has run out to save your life he must eliminate every trace of your existence starring recently departed james khan oh and arnold this was a, a weird time for arnie doing an action movie because he had gone into doing that family movie era and then all of a sudden just jumped back into doing this action film and it's kind of it's not one of the good ones. This does not recapture the 80s magic of Arnie. And it feels very late to be doing this in 1996. But, you know, it's directed by Chuck Russell. He of Nightmare on Elm Street 3 fame, which is a nice connection to this podcast because we had uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 6 top in the UK box office along with Freddy's Dead and recent number one, The Mask. Even though it wasn't kind of a return to glory for Arnold, still did 242 million around the world at the box office although that was against a budget of 100 million. Yeah, 100 million being spent on this movie. Bloody hell. Hey, those cigars don't come cheap. Christmas Day. Very, very breaking news. There was a direct-to-video reboot of the film titled Eraser Reborn, starring Dominic Sherwood, which was released June 7th of this year. I did see this. Apparently they filmed it in secret and then released it. And when I say they filmed it in secret, I imagine was nobody cared that they'd made it. They were embarrassed. What, what are you going to work on today? Where are you going to be a grip on, dear? Um, porn? <laughs> <laughs> and just to round out the month of August, Zoe Ball presents her final edition of The Big Breakfast on Channel 4. Crikey, they're going through presenters like nobody's business on this podcast at the moment, having left the series in order to present Live and Kicking with Jamie Thiessen on BBC One. Do you know it's weird? I thought they were the earlier grouping on Live and Kicking. I don't know why, but I certainly remember them being on there because Saturday morning TV was still great at this point. I sometimes taped it because I was out doing things or working, but I'd watch it on a Saturday evening. Why not? I could fast forward to the bits that I didn't like. Uh, and lastly, for August in the news, on the 31st, Quake tops the UK gaming charts. Good time for games at the moment, Ash. What have we got going on in the magazines? Scandalous news for the Nintendo 64 this month. 
A report from a recent meeting in Japan between Nintendo boss Mr. Yamuchi and industry analysts has been leaked to several sources on that there internet. And it features a few revelations sure to disappoint the European games player. The first is that there is no way that Nintendo will be able to get the Nintendo 64 into Europe this year. After months of Nintendo claiming the Christmas release of their Wonder Machine would go ahead, their plans have finally been scuppered. In the same meeting, he announced that 20 titles are to be launched in July, although no specific names were mentioned. Mr. Yamuchi claimed that it would be a doubtful that any of them would match Mario 64. Wow. In a more interesting comment, he mentions that the SNES and Nintendo 64 would exist together and that Nintendo would be taking major steps during the next few months to ensure that the SNES would still be a major force for the rest of the year. Once the Japanese launch of the N64 is dealt with, the SNES will get some long-deserved attention. Nintendo are also assessing the internet at the moment and trying to work out the best way to utilize the huge potential that they see there. This follows on from Sega's internet Saturn package, which will be available soon. After Sony and Sega's price-cutting antics last month, Nintendo were refusing to join the party, claiming that they offer a significant leap in technology over the two 32-bit machines. Whatever they do, the only certain thing is that the only Nintendo 64s that will be seen over here this year are import ones. Yeah, our first contestant on Games Master Series 6 has an import one as well. Games Master are flushed with import versions of the N64. You know, we kind of done it as a bit of a running joke that people thought that, you know, they really did think that we were going to get it in 1996 and, man, dark times were ahead for them. Although I do think it's unfair to wonder if the N64 was going to slash its price because PlayStation and Saturn had. They've been out for a year at this point. Why is Nintendo looking to slash their price? They haven't been out yet. Moving into the month of September, and we have a new number one at the UK box office, Mulholland Falls. Los Angeles, 1953. We don't want organized crime in LA. If you break the law, you'll have to answer to a special squad of detectives. This is Mulholland Falls, Jack. You guys can't do this. This is America. This isn't America, Jack. This is L.A. Which sounds like a Jane Austen novel, but which is actually a crime thriller starring an ensemble cast, including Nick Nolte. I haven't really got much to say about Mulholland Falls, to be honest. The only thing I can tell you is that my local video, Plaza Video, uh, they used to give away posters. So like when movies would come out, they'd be sent posters. And then new movies would come out. So those posters would come down, new posters would go up. And we used to go in at the end of the month to get posters. And he would essentially just give us the posters that they were given as sort of like promotional things. So my friend here in like, probably would have been 1997, I guess, when the film would have been available to rent, had a Mulholland Falls poster in his room. I don't think he's ever seen that movie. To this day, I don't think he's ever seen that movie, but we got the poster for free from Plaza Video, so he had it up on his wall. Going back to one of my favourite places, Vidivision, I had a similar kind of thing. I got some posters, but the thing that I got that impressed me the most, I got the cardboard cutout of the Mortal Kombat logo for the Mortal Kombat video release. That's cool. That was stupidly large and stood at the end of my bed, propped between the end of the bed and the wall. And every so often, it would just fall over and land on me in the middle of the night. Scared the Jesus out of me. On September 2nd, former Olympic swimmer Sharon Davies succeeds Zoe Ball on The Big Breakfast. I remember her era. She wasn't bad. She was a different kind of presenting style. But The Big Breakfast, I think, was beginning to kind of struggle to find its identity at this point because so many of the forces that had made it had left. Yeah, we, I mean, we've had a massive rotating cast of characters in the last few episodes of this show, it feels like. But speaking of debuts, on the 4th of September, the hugely popular makeover series Changing Rooms 
debuts on BBC Two presented by Carol Smiley. The ultimate design challenge. Paint, strip and rip it apart. Let's neighbours loose on each other's homes. Two days, £500 and they're off. I'm getting slightly nervous, I have to say. Expert advice. We've got to get rid of this ghastly wallpaper. <laughs> Nerves of steel. Open your eyes. <laughs> and Carol Smiley. Luckily it's not my home, it's yours. <laughs> Designs to die for. Changing rooms. A new series begins in half an hour. Now that's come back recently. It has indeed. Yeah, it's had a bit of a resurgence as as changing rooms, as, as has Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen, in fact, for that matter. I mean, one, he is dressing like an absolute scoundrel. I, I'm I'm not going to criticise other people's fashion, mainly because of the amount of fashion that I may lack. But I do look at him, and I'm just going, mate, who who are you kidding? Really, those trousers are being held on under protest, and also just who would go for it? Have none of these idiots seen the original series? Do they not know the level of disaster they're letting themselves in for? On the 7th, and we'll dive into this a little bit more when we get into Series 6 because we have a news item coming up, Sega opens Sega World in London as part of the Trocadero. It's the first Sega World park to open outside of Japan. Something wonderful is happening. Something magic. Something that will change the way you think about high-tech entertainment. Sega World is coming to the Trocadero Piccadilly Circus in London. Welcome to the next generation of indoor entertainment. And it did not work. On the 8th, we have another new UK box office number one. We did warn you that there are five of them this month, and this one is Chain Reaction. The Cold War may be over, but we now find ourselves embroiled in another struggle, an international industrial struggle, a struggle we dare not lose. In a split second. Eddie, did you computer model your work? No, I didn't. I was uh, too busy building it. Eddie Kasalovich will be left with the one thing no one else possesses. Cheap, abundant energy, water into hydrogen. Who'd be interested in this technology? A secret. Who wouldn't? The rest of the world would kill for. There are many threats to our way of life. Not all of them wear uniforms. Yeah. It's all about the exciting world of kind of renewable, clean energy and the attempts by the United States government to prevent the spreading of this technology to other countries. Sounds implausible, doesn't it? But did have a great cast. Young Keanu, Morgan Freeman, Rachel Weiss, Fred Ward. I like Fred Ward. Kevin Dunn and Brian Cox. I actually skipped over this one, but I actually do want to highlight this because they've actually been a bit of a feature of these past two episodes. But on the 6th of September... On BBC One, we got the debut of Muppet Tonight. Muppets Tonight, the show that has people all over the country saying, Where's the remote? I don't get it. Michelle's taking a robot. Hear the musical number. He always sings. Raggy music to the cattle as he swings. This is stupid. That's not funny. This job is too hard. Do you like to? The most sophisticated comedy in the world. The brilliant Muppets Tonight begins Friday the 6th of September. On BBC One. This show really improves with age. <laughs> I wish that series was available on Disney+. Plus. Same here. I think people don't look back on it fondly. 
because it's not it it was not the Muppet Show. It was sort of the new era of the Muppets. But I loved Muppets Tonight. On the seventh, the day after the debut of Muppets Tonight, rapper Tupac Shakur is shot several times in what is apparently a drive-by shooting, and he would die six days later. Uh, we mentioned like, back in that first part of this in February, he just released like the one of the biggest albums ever, and not even a year later, six months later, dude was dead. On the 10th of the month, Walmart announces that it will not be carrying Sheryl Crow's upcoming self-titled album because of the lyric, Watch out sister, watch out brother, watch our children while they kill each other with a gun they bought from Walmart discount stores. I'm genuinely shocked that Walmart didn't see that as a bit of actual positive advertising. Because I'm not saying that Walmart's that kind of company. And I'm only not saying that because I don't want them to sue us. <laughs> and on that same day, the Nickelodeon animated series Hey Arnold makes its UK debut on ITV, oddly, a month before it debuts in the United States. I just want to say, no, I didn't editing anything out between us talking about Walmart <laughs> and gun shootings and Hey Arnold. We literally just whiplashed 180 that quickly. That's the way this podcast goes, baby. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to tell you that the day after that, we've got Bowie news because David Bowie's single Telling Lies becomes the first song offered as a digital single by a major record label. Bowie launched the single by hosting an online chat in which he and two other people pretending to be him answer questions from the audience. Bowie tells the truth while the other two are telling lies. That's a great gimmick that only worked in the text era of internet, but that is absolutely astounding i've got to see if there's a transcription of that available has to be somewhere someone must have saved that love i just love that little bit of news and and do do bloody miss david uh on the 14th slightly different uh peter andre is top of the pops with flavor yeah the last time this much washboard was in the charts george formby was still knocking around it's the fifth single from his second album that blows my fucking mind because I could have sworn Mysterious Girl was like, when was that? Was that ages ago? It must have been. I mean, this is his first number one, so that's why we haven't talked about him much. So Mysterious Girl must have come after that. I would have thought Mysterious Girl was his first track. Yeah, no, okay, Mysterious Girl was 1995. Is that not a number one then? Nope, this was Andre's first number one single in the UK. I am still by that. It also reached top 10 for Denmark, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Sweden, and specifically the Wallonia region of Belgium. <laughs> I've just double checked. It was number two when it was released in 1995. Still number two now. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, on the 15th, we have another new number one at the top of the UK box office with A Time to Kill. Not a sci-fi thriller, sadly. It's an American legal drama film based on John Grisham's novel of the same name, Matthew McConaughey, Sandra Bullock, Samuel L. Motherfucking Jackson, starring alongside Donald and Kiefer Sutherland, and it did okay. Did okay critically, did okay commercially. 150 mil at the worldwide box office. No idea what the budget was, but it was a courtroom drama. They probably just borrowed the sets from Law & Order. On the 17th, Tool release Enema. I just wanted to note that there because I absolutely adore that album. You adore Enemas. I do. And on the 19th, in a slightly different change of pace, the Spice Girls release Spice. They're number one across the world. Can you handle a Spice Girl? Anyone can be a Spice Girl. Now it's your turn to indulge in the year's hottest album, featuring the smash hit Wannabe and the new single Say You'll Be There. Girl power's coming at you. 
This is what you really, really want. Add some spice to your life with the new album from the Spice Girls. If you want to be my lover. No relation to June. I had this album. I love this album. In fact, actually, as we're recording this, the Spice Girls have more or less just announced that they're going to be doing what we appears to be either a reunion tour or it's a re-release of the second album that came out the following year, Spice World, uh, because it'll be the 25th anniversary of that album this year. So we may be seeing more Spice Girls before before the year is ours. Oh, someone needs to buy an extension. <laughs> Hey, look, I will be buying stuff. If it's a new vinyl, I'll be buying it. If they're doing a tour, I'll probably get try and get tickets to go and see it. On the 21st, however, we have a new number one on top of the charts. It's the Fugees with Ready or Not. Only there because they deleted their last song. On the 22nd, we have a new box office number one. <clears throat> Is it a good sequel? It's Escape from LA. Welcome to the theatre. For everyone's enjoyment, we'd like to remind you of the following rules. No talking. No smoking. No littering. No red meat. No freedom of religion. And remember, all marriages must be approved by the Department of Health. Failure to obey these rules will result in immediate loss of citizenship and deportation to the island of Los Angeles. Enjoy the show. Your rules are really beginning to annoy me. It's certainly a movie John Carpenter made in the 90s. I don't like talking about bad John Carpenter movies. Bums me out. There are no truly unwatchable John Carpenter movies. That's true. There are no like absolutely irredeemable John Carpenter movies. I mean, at the very least, it was co-written and produced by Deborah Hill and Kurt Russell. Russell was obviously starring with it. It's, of course, a sequel to Escape from New York. And it's got a great supporting cast. I mean, it's got Steve Buscemi, Bruce Campbell, Peter Fonda and Pam Greer in it. Yeah, I I think it's because I love Escape from New York so much. That Escape from L.A. all those years later, not matching up to it and not even coming close to it either. It's uh, yeah. It's a bit of a sad state of affairs. Is Escape from L.A. It's not the worst movie that John Carpenter made in the nineties. No, it is not. I think actually, I think because it's the sequel to Escape from New York, it feels like it's the worst one. But it, you're right; it's not really the worst one. It's no John Carpenter's Vampires, and no. I say that with a heavy heart because I remember when I heard that was coming out, and I was super stoked. I read the original book. The book was badly written, but fun. And I saw the movie and I'm just like, oh, this is terrible, but still enjoyable in a very cheesy way. I just wanted to make a note of this one because look how times have changed here. Weezer released their second record, Pinkerton, but due to its darker vibe and its departure from their earlier style, it is less well received, it sells less and is critically panned. Which is funny because Pinkerton is now seen as like the best album Weezer ever made. That isn't the blue album. Hindsight is a beautiful thing, Luke. It really is. But we've got a new movie at the top of the UK box office. Our last for for September. And speaking of bad movies, it's Jean-Claude Van Damme's The Quest. Where did you learn a fight like that? It was long ago. On the run from the law. Check the cargo. He's here somewhere. Move it. Captured by gunrunners. A story. 
You work for us. Put him in chains. Who the hell is that? What's your name, son? Christopher Dubois. Mine stops. Your stops. Hurry up, man. Sold into slavery. Chris Dubois, the United States of America, the best fighter I've ever seen. Be ready at all times. You will learn that. He wouldn't give up until he found a way to win back his honor. There we go. That's how to put Escape from LA into perspective. It's not the quest. <laughs> Bad, bad movie is The Quest. But does co-star Roger Moore? And the last note that we have here for September, on the 29th, the same day that The Quest topped the UK box office, the Nintendo 64 is released in the United States. We still have a while to wait. Yes, we do. Uh, But Ash, what have we got going on in the magazines? Well, the magazine has got features on the upcoming Turok Dinosaur Hunter. It's got the news that the PlayStation 2 is on the way. Has it now? There's a sneaky look at Tomb Raider. There is a two-page feature on Sega World, which I'll keep in the back pocket for that news feature. However, this is a one-item magazine section for us. It's all about that review of Super Mario 64. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight pages of review. Ten different reviewers take this on, all being corralled and herded by Marcus. I love it when magazines do this. Like a real big, this is the game of the moments. We've got one of the early reviews here. Let's get everyone's thoughts on this. Ten different people's perspectives here. Whopping amount of pages. Love this coverage. And just to kind of skim through some of the uh, opinions from various people... Danny says a truly sterling performance from Nintendo. Never again will we dare to doubt their brilliance. Highly, heartily recommended. Les, favourite or not of the podcast, (laughs) Les, says Nintendo have put themselves miles ahead of the pack with one game. Not blooming bad. God only knows how Sega and Sony will respond to this. To which the answer is Sega will fail and Sony will kill them with volume. (laughs) That's exactly it. Zai says, I don't think any of us are fit to review video games anymore, as I suspect little else can now come close. Until Zelda 64, perhaps. Actually, that's not a bad prediction. Dan says, without Super Mario 64, the Nintendo 64 would be less than hot. With it, it becomes an essential purchase. Now that is some game. Tim adds, you simply must have a copy because console gaming has changed forever and believe me, you definitely want to be part of the revolution. Will says, irritating delays aside, Nintendo have delivered exactly what they promised and those who have forsaken the delights of the PlayStation or Saturn have been duly rewarded. If there was ever a killer app for a new system, Super Mario 64 is it. That's the first time I've seen the use of the phrase killer app during our time on this show. That's amazing. Sean says, gaming rules have been rewritten forever. Nintendo are the Spielbergs of the gaming world, while Sega and Sony are merely in their last year of film school. Oof. Oof. Lisa's up next, and she says, before you lot start, I'm qualified to review Mario 64. I might be a girl. The mad hair and flash accessories must be a dead giveaway. But I spent four years or so burning the midnight oil on games magazines. I hate that she has to clarify that. Uh, That bums me out more than saying bad things about John Carpenter movies. Yeah. But she does say, it's been difficult to play on this game. The boys have really hogged it. 
I just hope Marcus will let me borrow one of our Nintendo 64s this weekend. I'm 40 stars down and counting. And lastly, from the second opinions, Will says, for once the word stunning seems completely appropriate. And Will's favourite bit is racing the mother penguin down the frighteningly narrow and slippy ice course. Not recommended for those of a nervous disposition or bandana. (laughs) Doesn't say the last bit. Oh man, but it will do in years to come. But the man giving this a score is Marcus, Luke. Mm -hmm. Are you ready to try your luck again? Let's go for it. Graphics, astounding. The anti-aliasing works superbly. There are huge things in there and the ripples, ooh. It's got to be big. Surely this has got to be a massive, massive score. I can say that this is the highest score we have encountered whilst playing this little score game. Maybe the highest score we ever encounter. It's not going to be 100, but I will say 99. It is 99 for the graphics. Sounds. Mario seems to sound like Mickey Mouse these days, but the music doesn't suffer for not being on CD. Yeah, that sounds like it might be low 90s. I can say like a, a, a 90... 94? 94. Oh, is it really? Holy oh, shit, dude. Yes, get in. And then he went 93. Gameplay. Sexy. Mario handles superbly, but you won't instantly be comfortable with the cameras. So we're definitely not going to be perfect here. But that is a fair point. The cameras did take a little while to get used to. Yeah, I think that's going to be like a 95. 97. Oh, man, that is big. Lifespan. Getting hold of all seven stars on each level is going to keep you coming back for more and more. Hmm. It is a big old game. A 90... I'm going to say... I'm going to stick with the difference. 97? 96. It's close. It's close. Right. So, overall, the way this game has charmed even the most sparkery of people speaks volumes. It's peerless. Repeat, it's the best game I've ever played. So, graphics 99, sounds 94, gameplay 97, lifespan 96. Where are you sitting for that final score? So you're looking at those three numbers bringing down the 99, but it's not going to, even with that 94, it's not going to bring it down massively. And I don't think it's getting 98, so I'm going to say 97%. You got it. (laughs) Possibly the most important round of Strike It Lukey we will ever play that doesn't involve a bucket of gunge being held over your head. And you nailed it, really. I'll take that every day of the week. As we head into our final month of this mammoth wrap-up of 1996, October. And on the 5th of that month, Tekken 2 tops the UK video game chart. As on that same day, Deep Blue Something are top of the pops with Breakfast at Tiffany's. And I think she said that she remembers the film. And I think he recalls that he kind of liked it. So that's the one thing they've got. This song, though, here it is, top of the charts, tail end of 1996, last quarter, if you will, originally appeared on a Deep Blue Something album in 1993 and then re-recorded again for their 1994 album, Home, and then released again as a single in 1995. And then here we are in 1996, where it gets released in the UK. This song has got cat's lives. This is clearly a song that they believe in. It's going to be a hit. Like, we just need some people to hear it. We just need to get onto Radio 1. If we just keep releasing it with, you know, some shiny new bells and whistles each time, eventually it'll get out there. And credit to them. They stuck to it and it did work. The chopping mall method to bring ourselves back to being the unofficial Dick Miller podcast 
It's like Chopping Mall. If you just change the title of the film often enough, at some point, someone will buy it. Uh, the day after, The Nutty Professor is our UK box office number one. For Professor Sherman Clock, being the big man on campus was no laughing matter. Jimmy Hopper! You got to work out, you got to push a switch. Here we go, one, two. His body was disproportionate. Anything I can get for you? Juice, coffee, rack of lamb. His family <laughs> was dysfunctional. I don't know why everybody trying to lose weight in the first place. You're talking about that's healthy. I know what healthy is. And his love life. I'm a big fan. Thank you very much. I'm fatter. Flattered. Was disastrous. <laughs> but now. Thanks to the miracle of science. He's about to make a change for the thinner. I'm not a fan of the Nutty Professor remake. Um, let's be honest, it's fat shaming. Yeah. Like, I, I can imagine that there were a lot of kids that were overweight that got bullied as a result of this film. And it, it's Eddie Murphy going around in a fat suit. That, that's, that's where the joke is. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's him doing the rest of his family in fat suits as well. I'm probably in a minority on this one. Critics loved it. It was very successful. It spawned a sequel, Nutty Professor 2, The Clumps, that was released like three years later. And if you like this film, that's fine. I just as a former really big bloke, find films like this hard. I am one of those people that actually quite liked this film. I haven't... It's fine. I would say I haven't seen it probably since the early aughts. But I remember like at the time, you know, I was 10 years old when this film came out. I remember thinking the trailer was really funny. I wouldn't have seen it until it was out on video a few years later. But yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I thought Eddie Murphy was a funny guy. We are actually heading into a period of time now where I saw Delirious and Raw for the first time and thinking they were like the funniest things I'd ever seen. Mm. And some of the humor in that has not aged well. No, it hasn't. It really hasn't. On the ninth, we had the debut of the new cookery series, which becomes very popular, Two Fat Ladies on BBC Two, presented by Clarissa Dixon-Wright and Jennifer Patterson. Conventional recipes. I forgot my line squeezer. Unconventional cooks. Slosheted. Larger than life. Oh, I'm the kitchen fairy. And twice as fruity. I got a kitchenalia fetish, you see. <laughs> Two fat ladies, Wednesday at 8.30 on BBC Two. Became an absolute cultural phenomenon, those two. They really did. Here is something that's very pertinent to our interest, though. On the 11th, after nearly 14 years, Channel 4 is given a whole new look, replacing the original coloured block idents with all new circle idents. Not a fan. I like the blocked coloured ones. I really did. And it's so weird. If you look at the modern idents with the kind of anthropomorphic silver blocks, it's that classic block four. Everything that is old is new again. One of my favourite things about doing this podcast, uh, and there are, there are many, is putting together the, the edits for this and going and finding the adverts and looking for Channel 4 promos from around the time and sort of idents and things like that. And 
seeing all of this and having that rush of nostalgia, seeing the way that Channel 4 was presented, it's going to be weird looking at the new version of Channel 4, the circular version of the of the channel. The day after, Chemical Brothers were top of the pops with Setting Sun. Featuring an uncredited vocal performance from former Nebworth headliner, Noel Gallagher. My brother was actually massively into the Chemical Brothers. Never really my scene, but um, my brother really liked them. And this won't be the last time that Noel kind of like works with the Chemical Brothers because he also provides, again, uncredited vocal performance for Let Forever Be. Again, another absolutely amazing track. The day after on the 13th, Courage Under Fire is top of the UK box office. Patella, find me a target. I think I got one, sir. Do you or do you not have a target? It's hard to make out, sir. Fire. A man with questions about his own conduct. Losing a man like your friend Boilar. I've been there. Must now defend the courage of another. The White House has heard that we're considering the Medal of Honor for this chopper pilot who saved a bunch of guys on the down Blackhawk. Naturally, they want it for Veterans Day. Naturally. It's a woman. You didn't know? This is Captain Karen Walden. She's the first woman in history to be nominated for a Medal of Honor for combat. Ah, a war film starring Denzel Washington and Meg Ryan. And it was released. Positive reviews. Grossed $100 million worldwide. No idea what it cost. Uh, Moving on to the 15th, where Korn released their second studio album, Life is Peachy, which is an album that is a slightly cleaner sounding because the first album is a really dirty, I would almost argue, poorly recorded album. Uh, But the second one, a bit more money was spent, a much cleaner sound to what they were trying to do as a band. I don't think it's as good as the first album, uh, but it has got some really, really like iconic corn tracks on there, Twist and Chi and Adidas. It is, they have a really good release with the first album and a great follow-up with Life is Peachy, but they are about to hit the stratosphere with their next release, Follow the Leader, because that, that, that is really when like them and Limp Bizkit become the two biggest bands on the planet. It, they're about to just go stratospheric with this. Yeah. And you're right, it's amazing how many bands can just go from being kind of like mud to sonically interesting, nay, brilliant, just because all it needs is for a record executive or someone in a position of power with some money to hear them and go, there's something here. Here, meet this producer, meet this recording engineer, and suddenly, boom, performance can be transformed. An album can be turned around. It, it's really that kind of difference maker. Yeah, and I think for Korn as well, it is that team up with Todd McFarlane to do the music video. We get so much airplane stuff. But anyway, that's in our future. We're not even going to reach it in our timeline because it's 1999. But I do want to point out on the 18th of this month, it is not a UK box office number one, but I bloody love it. Tin Cup is released. A golf movie that is good. It's better than Happy Gilmore. It's no Caddyshack. It's no Caddyshack, no, but it is a golf rom-com movie, and I absolutely adore Tin Cup. Yeah, my, my basically my measuring stick for golf movies is, does it have Rodney Dangerfield in it? No? Move on. This one doesn't. It does have Cheech Marin, though. Okay, now you've got my interest. Yeah. Cheech Marin, Kevin Costner, Rene Russo. Yeah, okay. Do you know, I genuinely, I've never seen it. 
I might check it out purely because I don't mind a bit of Cheech. Uh, on the 19th, Fox Kids launches in the UK, becoming the first one in Europe, which is going to be a big home for things like X-Men and Spider-Man and things like that. As we have our final chart topper as Boyzone, our top of the pops with words, which will also be the number one for when we start series six. Yeah, the lead single from their second studio album, their seventh single overall, became the first number one hit in the UK for them. And of course, as I think we alluded to last episode, it's a Bee Gees cover. Yeah, Take That's Demise didn't last very long because there's just a new different boy band to look at instead. Ash, that kind of brings us up to date with the TV show. And I suppose we're not going to dive into much of the magazine either. But uh, I, I suppose, you know, to wrap things up really into, you know, we're about to start series six. Do you have like any expectations before the show like i know you've seen a lot of the episodes and you've got your notes prepped for anything do you have any sort of like early thoughts that you may want to share about it because this is going to be our final nine episodes of dave perry on games master uh because he is not around for the reviews that were filmed after the the show was done so we are really on the countdown to the super mario 64 incident we are and i don't know i used to be really excited about getting to this point and now it's actually kind of a case of, oh, we'll have that out of the way soon. I think I'm less <laughs> excited about it. There is far more that I'm excited about this series. And also, this is the Dom and Mates era. Series 5 was on the way there. We have arrived there. But no, I am just looking forward to going into this era of Games Master that I would argue is one of my less remembered eras of Games Master. I think I remember more of Series 7 than I do of Series 6. Yeah. don't know why that is timing wise but it, it just is what it is and i'm super super stoked to get into this because we've got some interesting challenges coming up some utterly bonkers features and at least one person who is as iconic if not more than some of the games he created for all the wrong reasons like we've been talking about the the Super Mario 64 incident for for so long that to reach it in the timeline now feels so bizarre and yeah we are really on the countdown towards it and it's going to be weird watching this show without Dave Perry who has been a constant presence throughout this but uh, unlike you like series 6 is a one I remember very very clearly I remember watching this every single week the series 5 6 and 7 are the series i i remember the most vividly and i'm really excited for it because we've got some cracking challenges coming up in this one if you are one of the listeners to this show that has thought about series 5 god i wish i had a bit more double entendre in there i wish i had a few more dick jokes you'll love series 6 because they're all over the show we're gonna get a return to diamondisms in spades but that's going to do it for this in-between episode, this two-part in-between episode as we cover what happened between Series 5 and Series 6. Next week is the official start of Series 6 with Episode 1 that is chock full of Nintendo 64 and there's quite a bit to talk about. So we will dive into that next week and you can find us on social media, on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. Or if you want to interact with us in real time, interact with other listeners and fans of retro gaming and retro pop culture all in real time, you can do so over at our Discord where the amazing Cliff is not angry, 
He's just disappointed. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash pod, where you will get access to UCP Extra, which is this show format, but about other shows from the 80s and 90s and sometimes into the 2000s, and our monthly community show, Under Console Nation. But if you back us at the £5 level, you will get next week's episode, that launch of Series 6, one week early and ad-free. The £10 level, you get a little bit extra. What is that, Ash? They get our Patreon supporter pack, which has a shiny, glittery golden mug inside with retro stickers, sweeties, trading cards, badges, loads of good stuff in there. And that will be sent from our hearts straight to your door. And a shout out to this £10 backers, Xanderthal, William, Tom, The Amazing Cliff, Simon, Sean, Sarah, aka Pink Lithium, Richard, Reese, Nick, Misha, Matty, Boom, Mark, Link, Kevin, Jamie, Ian, Harriet, Manga Girl, Gordon Dempster, Gordon Brandt, David Palmer, David Fisher, Darkside73, Chrissy26, Arcadia Wild Bill, Andy, Andrew, and Adam D. Thank you all so much for joining us. We will see you in seven days' time in Atlantis. Take care, everyone. Good night. If you're updating your closet for summer, you need dependable clothes that you can wear anywhere, whatever you're doing. And for that, you can look to American Giant. American Giant makes clothing of exceptional quality for people who want something more than the status quo offers. Whether you need to re-up on reliable everyday t-shirts, pick up a solid pair of shorts, or invest in a pair of durable jeans, American Giant is a better choice. They make everything right here in the USA, from start to finish. So when you buy from American Giant, you become part of creating jobs and improving local communities in towns and cities all across the country. And keeping things local ensures the kind of quality you'll feel and appreciate for years to come. Shop your new summertime closet staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your order when you use code WA23 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com with promo code WA23. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.